Well, I, I received an um, email from a friend of mine this week, a pastor friend of mine out in California, and he, he, uh, he was sharing with me an email that he thought was kind of, or a list of things that he thought was kind of funny. I don't know where he got it, but they were the best and worst of country, song, you know, country uh, western song titles. And he kind of said, I like country song titles. Not that I like country music, but I like the titles because they're so earthy, they're so real, they're just so in your face. They just put it right in front of you. And I kind of agreed with that. Things like, my John Deere was breaking your field while your dear John was breaking my heart. Or how can I miss you if you won't go away? Her teeth was stained, but her heart was pure. Mama, get a hammer. There's a fly on Papa's head. I still miss you, baby, but my aim's getting better. Yeah, okay. I have another one that is even worse. I won't probably read that one. In fact, my, my, one of my daughters said to me that yesterday, Dad, I don't know if you should read a few of those. So she helped me put a filter on. But, um, you know, Jesus was right to the point. Uh, like, here's another one. My wife ran off with my best friend, and I sure do miss him. Um, <laughs> oh, I won't go into the other ones. Okay. Well, why did I read these things? You know what? I think Jesus spoke country song titles to people in a sense. He was just in their face. He would say things that would rock their world, that would grab them by the shirt collars, that would kind of slap them in the face. In this series, what I'm excited about in this series, which I've titled Just Jesus in the next three chapters, 11 through 13 of Matthew, is Jesus is telling people one conversation after another, straight out who he is and what God's rule looks like. Let's just pause for a moment and pray. Father, I invite your Holy Spirit to take words and thoughts and, and study time, all things that have been going on in my heart as I've prepared my heart to say these things. And God, use this. May your Spirit speak these words in the hearts of someone and Give them hope or give them a sense of perspective or maybe give them a sense of needing to look at things more closely. Whatever you choose to do, I pray, show up, God. Amen. Well, this series, Just Jesus, is about Matthew 11 through 13. And I have to tell you, I've shared with some people that Matthew is not one of my favorite Gospels for years until just about a few months back, probably fall of last year, when I started to, to go through Matthew in my own quiet time, and I'm getting to chapters 8 and 9, and they just strike me as, here is Jesus doing these miracles, and I see how he declares the Sermon on the Mount the truth of God, and he then demonstrates the reality of it, and then he says in chapter 9, right at the end, now go out and do the same, and then he gives these instructions in chapter 10 of how to follow him, like the rabbi. And I, I kind of always like Luke, you know, the gospel of the poor and the outcast and all the rest. And, and Mark, because he would just move so quickly. And, and John, he's just in another world all of his own. But I like Matthew because here's a guy who is a tax collector. He's an outsider of the things of God, looked down upon. And he has this encounter with God through Jesus Christ, which changes his life. And now he's on the inside, not because of what he's done, but because of what's in the heart of God and his love for them. And he wants that message to be true for you. He does not want a person in this room on the outside of an encounter and experience where you can walk in the love of God. He wants you. 
to know what it means to follow him. And so he, he begins in chapters 11 through 13, and it looks like a bunch of disconnected stories when I first was reading. But there's a central theme in each of these three chapters. And the stories revolve around this one basic question. How will you respond to Jesus and the kingdom he presents? Each story basically is held together by either our response or our lack of response to this Jesus. Just Jesus. With no additives. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus who confronts everything and anything we hope in that's outside of him and his love and his truth. A Jesus who, who comes along and, and he, he, he basically takes the legs out from every preconceived and assumption of God that's not true and accurate. A Jesus who comes along and, 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 and talks to people who are, who are putting religious activity and, and some other things in, in a place that are central that shouldn't be central. So that they have to look at God through Jesus and see just Jesus. And Jesus has the gall to believe that he and your response to him alone will determine your present experience of God and your eternal destiny with God. He has the gall to think that your response to him will make a difference in how you live today and how you will live for eternity. I like what Richard Gemp says in a book of his. It's called Mealtime Habits, and he's really rather humorous. But at one point he says... On one hand, Jesus wrapped a towel around himself and washed feet. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus had a very high opinion of himself. He is self-confident to the point, if anyone else acted this way, we'd call him arrogant and conceited. Jesus thinks more than the world of himself. Think of that. Jesus thinks more than the world of himself. He believes how you feel about him will determine how God will feel about you on the last day. That's a lot of gall. Well, today's story and each story that follows asks that basic question, how will you respond to Jesus? Not the Jesus you want him to be, nor the Jesus that you may have been taught that has misconceptions to it. Jesus wants you to experience him for who he truly is. Is he showing up to you by his word through his Holy Spirit, standing in a sense before you in your life situation today? I mean, I love the fact that God wants to have a personal encounter with you. I love the fact that I can walk and know that God wants to live with me and he wants me to, to enjoy this world and to, and to live in a place where I can begin to grow and, and know peace and to walk in that peace. And I have to share with you folks, I, this has been a hard and a long path. It's an easy path in the sense of trusting. It's all it means is to trust Jesus. But a person who wants to grow deep in their understanding of the love of God and the humility, the humility that comes with that, where you begin to experience his joy and his peace, is something that, that is, is this a lifetime walk of following. And what I find is interesting here is that Matthew starts with John the Baptist, whom Jesus will call the greatest of Old Testament prophets. You, you look at this and, and you would think if you were to start with this response and lack of response to Jesus, you might, you might start with the people who are farthest away and maybe move into that other way. He starts with the person who should be closest. Think about it. John is the Baptist who actually introduced the world to this Jesus as Messiah. 
I mean, if anybody should get it right and know who just Jesus is, it should be him. Well, I want to share with you four times that you need kind of a little perspective and you need to look in Matthew four times. He speaks about John the Baptist. Matthew does. And he starts in chapter three. So you get a little idea of, of Matthew and his thoughts on John here. You've got to go back to chapter three, which is the baptism of of Jesus. That's where he starts. In a sense, we've come to call John the Baptist that title Baptist, but you know, I think in his day, it would have been probably more accurate to call him John the Baptizer. That's how they might have referred to him because he was doing something very radical. He was actually baptizing Jews. You didn't baptize Jews. That was an initiation, right? For someone who was coming from the Gentile outside of the faith, they would be baptized, washed clean of all their old faith so they could enter into the faith of this God of the Old Testament of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they could begin to follow this God. So, so it was a Gentile who would be baptized. But here is John the Baptist, and one of the reasons he was looked at with such, um, in such a derogatory way by the leaders of his day was because he's, he was the baptizer baptizing Jews. Basically saying, you don't, you don't get into a relationship with God because you have some kind of blood relationship. You don't get into some kind of uh, understanding of walking in the things of the Spirit because you, you come into a church building and you attend it on a regular basis or, or because you have enough knowledge in your head of, of God's Word and the Bible. You actually come into it into a, a very repentant, humble place where you recognize your own brokenness and your need of God. And when you're in that place, you have this opportunity to walk in this. And he's calling the people, John the Baptist, back to their faith relationship with God. And so you have this first introduction of John the Baptist. And he, he's baptizing people, and one day Jesus shows up. And, and here Jesus comes to him, and, and John goes, oh, no. I mean, he gets it. You're the Messiah. You're the one to come. Um, I, don't, I, I can't baptize you. I can't even carry your sandal. And Jesus basically says, baptize me because I am not just fully God showing up as the Messiah. I am also fully man, identifying fully with the sin and brokenness of mankind so that someday I can carry that and set people free from the bondage of their own selfishness so that the love of God can break into their hearts. So baptize me. And he does, and this incredible ecstatic experience occurs where the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. and, and, And the Father says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased John sets the Messiah off on his path. And then you go to chapter 4, verse 12. And it's just a quick sentence, an editorial comment that Matthew needs to put in here so we understand what happens to John. Verse 12 says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Herod Antipas, not happy with the message that John was preaching, specifically at that point, is on the, the east side of the Dead Sea in his fortress at Machaerus, gets a hold of John, throws him into prison. Because John had been doing something that a lot of prophets have done through the ages, and that is they would stand against those who were, who were in leadership and they were sinning, and he was calling out their sin. And he was calling out the sin of Herod. And most of those prophets paid a price for it, and so did John. It says in verse 3 that Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's wife. For John had been saying to him, 
you know, it's not a good thing that you're doing here, taking your brother's wife. And he was saying it publicly. It's a little embarrassing for a politician or king, is it not? And so Herodias, who is feeling really shameful, wants him in prison. And Herod does it. And here's what's remarkable in this statement is that Jesus, when he hears word of it, it says that he left the area because he was in the area where John was and he quietly went back up to Galilee. And then we come on to the next scene. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, which we're going to look at today. It's John in prison, flies buzzing around his head and doubts as well. He's just plagued with both these things. And as Jesus seems to be growing in popularity up in Galilee, he's sitting in a prison cell wondering, where is this Messiah? And Jesus allows doubts in John's life for a purpose. And in a moment, we're going to talk about these doubts that you may yourself experience in your life. And the last thing he says is in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, which we won't even go into today, is John's death, who at one point, here is Herod's daughter in, by this other marriage, dancing provocatively before him. He is in a drunken, excited state and promises her anything. She goes to her mom and she says, I'd like John's head. And John is put to death. That's, that's the scenes you have in Matthew. So let's return to Matthew, this first story. Because after some period of time, as, as, as John is in prison and Jesus is growing in, a, in popularity, John has his own encounter with just Jesus. I think it's interesting he starts here. If you look at verses 11, chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, it begins. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee. Now, you have to understand that when Matthew is making transitions into a new topic and, and a new essential theme, he uses these kind, of, these kind of connectives that Jesus went to another place. So that's what's going on here. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Kind of an interesting question after he had already baptized him and told everyone this is the guy. A little bit of doubt. Right? Are you with me? Okay. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And then verse 6, blessed. God's favor, in a sense, is the man. It rests on the man who does not fall away on the count of me. Account of that response or lack of response to me. So this story poses a series of questions around this whole idea of doubt, which I want us to look at for the next remaining minutes we have. And the first is this. Are you afraid to doubt? I mean, is doubt a scary thing for you when you think about it or you think of someone you love or who's close to you doubting or you think of maybe a, a boyfriend or a spouse or a girlfriend or, or, or a relative or you think of maybe your own kids? Are you afraid when others doubt? Does someone's doubt create insecurity and fear in you? 
if you look at verses 2 and 4 again, I think it's very interesting. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And I look at, at the response of Jesus is very interesting. He, he replies, go back and report to John what you hear and see. It, what's interesting here is that you don't find Jesus upset or afraid. You don't see him anxious like, oh, man, John, oh, come on. Don't you remember? I, you, you, we had this cool experience. I mean, none of that seems to be reported here. Jesus seems rather cool about the whole thing, and he's, he's rather nonplussed, and he basically just responds back to him and says, you know, go tell him what you see. And he gives him these lines of what, what's going on. Just bear witness to what's happening. And let John, as he has the word of God, which he knew, because the word that Jesus gives him is from Isaiah, and he begins to with his heart, because he has a good heart and he has the Holy Spirit, begin, let him figure it out. Let him pray and ponder and work this through. And Jesus isn't bothered or upset. You don't see him, you don't see insecurity being created in him. You don't see him running, you don't see him running to Herod's rescue. I mean, I mean down to um, John's rescue to do something with Herod. So let me ask you, how do you respond when someone who is close to you begins to doubt? What what have you found to be most helpful in a period when you are in doubt? How do you handle some of you parents who have brought your kids maybe some miles to a campus and you've left them off there and you maybe have grandkids, some of you there, and, and you let them go and you go, oh, I just hope they don't. Chuck it all, right? What's your reaction to doubt? I honestly think sometimes when, we, when you really get down to the depth of this, your insecurity or my insecurity in the face of another's doubt may say far more about ourselves than them. If you know something to be true, don't you remain pretty quiet? you know, pretty calm and collected and pretty confident. I mean, if the guy who's burned the Koran was to stand up here today and, and he was to make a proclamation that, you know what, folks, if we don't burn Korans today, tomorrow the sun's not coming up. How many would be getting anxious and, and a little bit nervous and going, oh, no. You just kind of go, right, I know the truth. You see, when a person comes to you and and they're going through doubt, it's not really about you. It's about what things are going on in their life. And it may be that God is taking the doubt and using the doubt to bring them to a deeper place of faith and and a deeper realm of trust. And so there is a sense where, yeah, you can be nervous because you don't want them to chuck it all. But parents, I even say to you, if the word of God says that you have if you have lived your life in such a way that you've lived honestly before God. And if you haven't, you better go and, and share that you haven't with your kids because that's going to get in the way. But if you live honestly before God and you've sought to live your life as, as, as you should and you've seen in their life, maybe they've evidenced faith even at a young age or the, and you know their hearts and you know the basic um, heart of your child, there is a sense where you just got to let it go because often what I find is when parents hang on to the kid, they're really, they're really not rejecting their faith. They're rejecting mom and dad's hold on them. Or, or maybe a, a person like a spouse or a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or, or someone who's a relative or a parent, whatever. There's a sense where you can, if you can trust the word of God that says, you know what, I am very much alive and at work. And this is a human being who has a heart and who has a will and who has a, and who has a mind and, and can choose. Then you kind of let go and you just pray like crazy. You pray, right? 
So are you afraid of doubting? I, I don't see Jesus getting upset, and I don't see John the Baptist going nuts, except for he's in a place of despair. Well, let me ask you another question. Are your doubts really about Jesus? One of the things that I started the message first service that I didn't say this service is one of the things I'd ask you to do in this series is, is to think about just Jesus. If Jesus were to show up to you today and, and want to walk with you today, what would that mean? And then I ask you to do this. As I share these things, don't be trying to think of someone else, okay? Really be thinking about yourself. And so in this sense, think about yourself for a moment. Not about the person that's sitting next to you, but are your doubts about Jesus or are they about the kind of Jesus you want him to be? It's a really, really good question. Could God be using your doubts to remove things that you've added that shouldn't be there? Could God be using your doubts to drive him to, to, to him and him alone? John doubted because Jesus wasn't the Messiah he had hoped for. That's what, that's what this passage seems to indicate. This wasn't the Jesus he thought he had baptized. You think about it, and you think about John and his doubt. Here is John and Jesus, they're cousins. I mean, they knew each other before they were born. Elizabeth and Mary got together and it says that they jumped in their womb at the, at the sense of the presence of God. So they, they must have grown up with their moms telling them these stories and, and their moms talking about this divine, um, uh, all these things going on around them when they were born. And they were, they were told about what God was planning for them. They had these divine destinies. They were kind of aware of that in some sense. And John realized at a very young age, I'm sure, because he says he went out into the desert, that he was going to be the one God placed on his heart. He called him and said, you're going to be the one who sets the table for my son. And he, he had heard that in his heart clear. And, and then you get this picture of John baptizing Jesus in an ecstatic experience in this moment where he, he's done his job and he's released the Messiah. And now he's in prison and he's doubting. He's thinking, this wasn't the Jesus I had hoped for. This wasn't really the one that I had envisioned. And the reason I can say that is if you look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, you see what his message is. Listen to, the, to these words. They describe the kind of Jesus he was looking for. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So he's basically saying, it doesn't matter whether you're related by blood or you're related by going to church with your parents or anything like that. It's only about your faith relationship with God. And then he says to these Jews, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment, baby, is coming and it's, it's on the heels of the Messiah. And then verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is not tongues of fire that fill us to do the work of ministry. In his mind, it, he tells you exactly what this fire is in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with what? Unclenchable fire. John did not have in his wheelhouse this thought 
of a Jesus who came to share a message of God's love for anyone who's outside the kingdom. But he saw Jesus filled with wrath and fury. John preached about a judgment to come. Jesus preached about God's gracious rule, which is available today for anybody who wants his involvement. John wanted a Jesus of judgment in line with the Old Testament prophets. God sent Jesus full of grace and truth, the glory of God. And then you ask yourself, was John wrong? No. Was John right? Yes. So which is it? It's a matter of timing. It's a matter of God's time frame. So Jesus basically says to the disciples of John, go tell John this, tell him what you see in here. Jesus calls John to accept the Jesus that God is presenting at this time in this place in history. He doesn't say to John, guess what, John, your expectation of judgment's all wrong. No, he basically says your time frame's wrong. What you need to understand is you need to accept and you need to know this Jesus who shows up by his Holy Spirit today, right now. The whole life with God is, is, is about listening to His Word and to His Spirit and beginning to integrate that into your heart and your life in such a way that you move according to His Spirit in the ways that He wants you to. And sometimes it will look different than what you think you want it to be. And so, He tells them to go do this. And the deep question here is this. Will you let Jesus be Jesus in your life? Will you really seek after Jesus who he really is and not who you want him to be. Are you willing to say, Jesus, take the things within my life that have clouded the conceptions that I might have, the assumptions that have been given to me growing up here in America on the Western um, civilized world and, and, and the things that I have experienced in my own home life and, the, and all these things. And will you help me to see who you really are so that I can follow you as you really are? And if you do that, you will go through periods of doubt. Jesus, when he taught, spoke truth. And he spoke truth and it caused people to have to doubt foundational things. So let me ask you, are you upset with the Jesus who, who heals all, who begs to touch the edge of his garment? I mean, everyone, no qualifications, whether they're good or bad, deserving of it or not. I was reading that in my quiet time in Matthew. And I went, man, that, that kind of bugs me a little bit. Does your Jesus work through pastors who entice people to attend church by giving away twins tickets or sets or a set of season tickets to the Vikings? As some of you may have heard. I'm not making a judgment here. I'm just is your Jesus Republican and watch Fox News? Seriously. Is your Jesus Democrat and tuned into CNN? Is your Jesus found only in a church building with a lot of other people who worship in a similar way? What limits do you put on Jesus? What do you add to Jesus? Is Jesus that you're looking for, does he need to punish your spouse today because of what he did yesterday to you? Does the Jesus you envision have to get back at your boss for his manipulation and intimidation now at this time? Do you serve a Jesus who has to provide a job tomorrow? Who is the Jesus you serve and what do you want from him? And does it have some kind of time frame? If you take a step further and you look at John, he's doubting Jesus. Not because of Jesus, but as a result of what he was hoping Jesus would do. Look at this. Look again at verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. But even more than that, I think, I wonder if he was sitting in prison thinking, why isn't Jesus down here 
in a sense, you can ask yourself, so what wasn't Jesus doing? Well, one thing he wasn't doing was setting John the Baptist free. So if you read those words that we read in this passage of Scripture, where, where Jesus says, go tell them, and he lists all these things, it's really from Isaiah chapter 61, but if you note it, you'll note that he leaves out a specific couple lines. He leaves out verse 1, the very last few lines. The very words that Jesus, it says in Luke, when he went to his own hometown, spoke this message. And here's what he said. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And can you imagine what John the Baptist is thinking? He's thinking, so if the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on you, Jesus, because... Why aren't you down here doing something about it? Why did you sneak off and now you're popular? Why don't you come back? Because it it, it appeared to me that you were going to set up this kingdom and it was going to follow and and, and he was going through this thing. But, But Jesus hears this. He doesn't get all upset. He doesn't respond. He doesn't go down and rescue him. He says, John, here's the word of God. Process it. Pray. Consider it. Grow up in him. Let your doubts drive you deeper to him. The things that you experience right now that you might not be getting from the Jesus that you want the way you want him to be might be because God... God is calling you into a place of brokenness where you come before him with nothing and you say, I want my life to be thrust on you and you alone. And I tell you, I'm reading through this and I'm praying about this stuff and I'm studying this and I'm looking at this passage of scripture particularly and I think to myself, how hard this has got to be for John. John's sitting in prison and he's praying through it and he's asking, he's saying, did I, did I do the wrong, did I give the wrong guy? My whole life was to, to be making sure the right guy gets put into the forefront and maybe I screwed that up. And then as he sits in prison and he waits longer and Jesus doesn't come, I'm sure at some point in my heart from what Jesus has to say in verse 6 that John worked through it, processed through it, prayed through it, pondered through it, came before his father and recognized my timing isn't your timing. And here is John. Imagine this. this I got emotional when I was going through this in my study time. Can you imagine John being called up before Herod and, and they bring the chopping block, and he gets his head separated from his shoulders. He's, to the very moment there, what he was hoping is no longer going to happen. I believe that in that place, John realized, it's not what I want, and it's not in my timing, and it's not the Jesus that I think should be, but it's the God who has life for me forever, that knows exactly what's going on. And I will rest in Him, in Him alone. And so the last question I ask you, you know, I, I just want to just close that thing. I just, as you think about that for a second in your own life, would you, say, you may be at a place, and I don't mean to make light of it, where you've been just hoping and waiting, but you know what? Here is the foundation that I've learned in my own life through time, which God's word testifies to, it is all about relationship and relationship is all about trust. And is there a God in your situation that you can trust that truly loves you? So finally, how do you know that the spirit of God is at work 
in difficult situations, when you're prone to doubt, when you're feeling despair. Matthew 11:6 captures, I think, the theme that follows through the rest of these chapters. If you read chapter um, verse 6, he says this. Blessed is the man, is the woman, is the child who does not fall away on account of me. So how do you know he's in it? If it was difficult for John the Baptist, the one who probably was closest to Jesus and to God as a prophet, as Jesus will say in the next few verses, just imagine, if you think how difficult it was for him to understand the kingdom of God and the presence of the Spirit, just imagine how tough it is for us. And yes, we have the Spirit of God, but we have all kinds of other stuff mixed up in it. We junk it up. We kind of think if, if things aren't growing and getting bigger and better, then man, God can't be in this. We kind of think in our own lives, if we don't see these things going well, God can't be in this. But what if God's even building your character right now? What if that's what the stage is? What if even as a body, God is right now building the character so that as our trust grows in Him, not in some pastor or some programs or some works, but in Him, He then has the ability to do the kind of things that only a spirit can do. And here's the question. It's so vital. How do you know when the Spirit of God is at work? And I can tell you this. You've got to do what Jesus said. Go back to His Word and begin to pray. And then listen to these questions that John poses. That, that, that Jesus poses to John. Are the powers of darkness being defeated? That's the question. Do you see that, John? Are people being healed? Are people being set free from patterns of sin? Are people growing in their character to become like Jesus himself? Are people finding Jesus as their Lord and Savior and following after him? Is love deepening and increasing in your heart and in the community that you're around? Is it happening in your family? The Spirit of God's at work. And so let me just give you some tips. We're going to close on this with 17 seconds left. No, we'll take a few moments to do this. The first is this. Tips about doubt. When you read this passage of Scripture and you see John the Baptist, he didn't stuff his doubt. One of the first things I encourage you to do is be honest with your doubt. You will not get to that deeper place if you feel like it's a bad thing and you've got to stuff it. It's okay to doubt and let someone else doubt. Process with them. It's not that you want to live there, but you need to face it. Second thing, doubt at times is really healthy. God allows doubt. Jesus taught and caused people to doubt because there's a healthy aspect of it because it, what it does is it takes away some foundations that might not be accurate so that we can know Him and Him alone. Just think about the times in, 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 in history. Just think if Galileo didn't doubt. We'd be, we wouldn't be into physics right now. Imagine if you hadn't doubted your belief that God's love was based on what you did and not what you earned. For some of you, you've left unhealthy family systems or relationships because you began to, to doubt. You questioned a person's disrespectful and unloving behavior to the point where you said, that's not right. So sometimes it's healthy and you need to help people and come around them. 
And then another is, don't doubt in dark what God has clearly revealed in the light. John was told by God in his spirit that he would be the person to set the table. He saw these things, but now he's in the pit of darkness. And let me tell you, God doesn't want us to live in despair. He doesn't want us to live in discouragement. But times we become discouraged because our eyes aren't seeing clearly what needs to be seen. And God uses that period to bring about change. But don't forget what he's told you here. If he has spoken to your heart, and you alone have to know that, you have to know that you know that you know what God has said to you, then hang on to it with all your life. And don't let it go. Darkness is not a good time to make some big decisions. And then last, use doubt to see what God is doing or could be doing. John the Baptist, I believe, was, was looking at what Jesus was doing, making some assumptions, but what he was probably even looking more at is what Jesus wasn't doing. He wasn't freeing him at that moment. I have a sense that what God wants us to be doing is not looking at what he's not doing in our life, but begin to start putting your eyes on the things he is doing in your life and other people's lives around you. And when you begin to do that, it begins to remove you from that place of darkness. So I encourage you to do that. And don't be afraid of it. Saints throughout history have doubted. But God is bigger. He's alive. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we hear this song, um, that the, the worship team will, will sing to us again. May we once again find that our life is in you and you alone. May we find ourselves alive only in, in what you as a person are and not in what we would want you to be for us, but what you truly are. And may we may we put our hearts so fully in the fact of your love that that love would make us alive no matter what the circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.